Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Victoria Shepard, the author of A History of Delusions, The Glass King, A Substitute Husband, and A Walking Corpse. What is the difference between being delusional or just being narcissistic? Why would someone wake up and claim they're Napoleon? or believe they have been turned into a wolf and demand to be fed raw meat. For centuries, we've dismissed delusions as something for doctors to sort out behind locked doors. But delusions are more than just bizarre quirks. They hold the key to collective anxieties and traumas. In fact, the National Institute of Mental Health found that one in five U.S. adults are living with a mental illness. We are living in a time where more of us are focused on our mental health than ever. As author Victoria Shepherd found, there are fascinating parallels between delusions over the years and contemporary discussions around mental health. In A History of Delusions, The Glass King, A Substitute Husband, and A Walking Corpse, Victoria Shepherd, who received or conceived and produced the 10-part series A History of Delusions for BBC Radio 4, uncovers stories of delusions from medieval times to the present day and implores us to identify reason in apparent madness. Ladies and gentlemen, this episode is remarkable, so let's get into it. Welcome, Victoria Shepard. What, um, you know, so your book, A History of, mm-hmm. of Delusions, uh-huh. um, I, I found fascinating for a number of reasons, um, but, I, but for the listeners uh, who may not know what a delusion is, uh-huh. uh, please t- just give us a working definition. So yes, the working definition is is really important, obviously, because there's so much. Minds are, are not neat. And, uh, you know, it's been very important in researching this book to, te- to take the sort of, I, I, I took the clinical definition um, from when the early, you know, psycho- how, as psychiatry would would sort of refer to it, um, as a fixed false idea that a person um, clings to, uh, an unshakable belief that a person uh, clings to, despite lots of evidence to the contrary, uh, the, the evidence won't shake, essentially. And so that those are the very much the parameters. Um, a person with a delusion may well be high functioning. Uh, it may be only one fixed false belief, um, uh, but that's that's the working definition uh, within which each of the characters um, in my book from history uh, sit sit within. Well, mm-hmm. it's so interesting because Michelle, my girlfriend, and I were just watching this uh, TV series called The Dropout about Elizabeth Holmes. Um, uh-huh. I, I don't know if you if you've heard of her, but. Uh, yeah. She, yeah, so she started this company called uh, Theranos or Theranos and seemed to be quite delusional throughout the, the process in terms of really believing that she could create this product and get it out and it'd be safe for everybody. And, um, and, and now she's looking at jail time because of her belief in the delusions. Um, it's ahead. really interesting because although my book is ostensibly a social history. I've looked over several, many centuries at, at, at people from the past who've experienced delusions, but a really interesting piece of research that really got me gripped 
um, retrospectively, obviously, but was was in 1991 uh, in Baltimore. There were, for the first time, large scale studies of the general population looking at delusions. So this is this is crucial to, to the book and to what I'm sort of doing with it. And they'd never bothered to ask the general population about delusional thinking is the, is the key point. The only people who'd ever been studied and sort of um, objectified really as, you know, marvels of the mind or bizarre, you know, freak shows really um, at the worst of it, but certainly kind of bizarre marvels of the mind. Those are the only people who'd who'd ever been spoken to by psychiatrists and, and made it into any kind of book um, to be measured or, you know, for, for any kind of taxonomy. But when the, these Baltimore, this Baltimore, these studies in the late 80s and, and in 1991 particularly, asked the German, bothered to ask the German population, um, it turned out that we're, we're all delusional. We all have at least one fixed false belief about ourselves that if we asked people closest to us, they'd say, no, that's not true. Um, and so that's what's really interesting. It's a great leveler, delusional thinking. And there, there are extremes. Of course, we're not all at, at an extreme end of it. But it was humbling researching this book and made me feel very compassionate and humane about being people. It sounds kind of a highfalutin, but being alive, really. You know, I realized looking at all of these people, they had so much in common in terms of what, how their delusions were functioning for them psychologically. Um, and, and it was all about people wrestling with a really difficult reality and that that was what was inspiring them unconsciously, of course, sometimes often, uh, but, but to create an, an alternative reality within which they could live, you know, where they could organize their enemy and that's what conspiracy theories or, you know, delusional, so often that, you know, it's it's um, in a world of kind of ambiguity and conflict, conflicted feelings and ambivalence or nebulous threat, you know, delusion, um, whether it, whether it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm Napoleon or whether it's, I can, I can pull off this, this business venture, no problem, you know, um, it's rather ingenious strategy for a very difficult existence. And most of us on, on a scale, of course, but experience that struggle with reality, with a wretched existence. And uh, I've gone off your question a bit wildly, but, uh, but you know, it, it, the historical examples, that the, the lives that I kind of explore in my book, they, it all comes back to this fact about that we all have to assimilate and realize about ourselves our own potential for delusional thinking both for positive and and potentially yeah potentially strategically you know they can be incredibly useful scaffolding um within a difficult um existence and that that kind of blew my mind I found that so um moving really I mean I was writing this during lockdown so everything was quite, quite intense anyway um you know in my garret pens in London but um yeah, I felt there's so that people started talking to each other, the different characters, the different types of delusion, but uh, there were so many shared functions and strategies, and they, I really did feel that, um, that all of the, all of those principal reasons why people become create an alternative reality for themselves have a have a fixed false belief. They're still true, and they're much much more interesting uh, than they might first appear. They're less other. Um, uh, they're less bizarre and in fact 
they're completely, I argue in the book, but I do think it stands up that they are completely understandable. You know, they they are, well, if you really unpick the, the lives of people who've experienced delusions, just on a psycho psychodynamic level, you can you can re- you can understand with all of them where they've come from, and you kind of often quite impressed with them as strategies. If that makes sense. Absolutely. You know, one of two things come to mind. One is children. Children are, mm. are have no idea dipping in and out of um, delusions, so to speak, and and pretending uh-huh. that they're a king or a princess or a dog or uh, a yeah. superhero. And we entertain that. And, we, you know, we, we don't look at that as um, a strange or a mental illness or something to be ostracized or demonized. And, mm. and kids grow up to, to flourish and become adults and, and functioning in the world. And for some reason, as adults, uh, all of a sudden, you want to be Spider-Man or Superman. And now we have an uh, issue uh, with <laughs> yeah. it. And and yeah. not recognizing that it can be a response to, like you said, you know, some traumatic event or mm-hmm. even loneliness, you know, right. it, you know, just like you said, you know, you wrote this during the pandemic. And and I think um, if you're like most people, like we probably talk to ourselves a little bit more, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, just because sure. of the isolation and, and withdrawal where and I think it, people understood it that, OK, this is acceptable behavior versus pre-pandemic where people would have been like, why are you talking to yourself? And why is that strange? Totally. And actually some other contemporary research that I came across doing really good work at the University of Sheffield in the north of England, you know, they've done a lot of work into a sense of belonging and connection in in communities. And there's a direct, um, well, obverse, is that the right word? Correlation between a sense of belonging and delusional thinking. You know, the more you set, the more connected you are. I mean, it's not if it's just sort of obvious, but it, I still found it kind of enlightening. The more, the more you experience a sense of belonging, the more coherent, a cohesive a, a community is. The more connected you are, opposite in lockdown, the the more you are able to to let go of delusional thinking, or or you're just not tempted by it. You don't need it. Um, so that it's absolutely those things are th- those two those those. Um, states of belonging or not belonging are absolutely connected to delusional thinking. And, you know, I mean, I did find with each of these characters from the past, again, I kind of forgot that they were existing in other centuries and decades because essentially what they're asking for is to be worthy of interpretation. You know, delusions are often sort of um, encoded they're telling the world how to teach you, how to treat you. So I have, I have, I have the case of the a king of France in the 14th century who, who thought he turned into glass um, and would shatter if he if he sat down. So he's on one, you know, publicly he's fighting a war with uh, with with England in the Hundred Years' War, but privately he's panicking that he's if he bumps into the wall he's going to shatter. So it's kind of it's kind of absurd. It's funny. But, but glass, this is how I got obsessed with the subject in the first place, was finding this one case. And it spoke to me, and I know I knew there was something really interesting in it. And of course, you know, if you're made of glass, it, it, it tells the world how to treat you. It, it tells the world that you're fragile to, to stay back, basically. It's like social anxiety. Um, and I found many contemporary cases of people who believe that that they've turned, bits of them have turned into glass. But it also tells the world that you're you're precious, you're a kind of treasure. Of course, glass was quite a new 
was extremely new in the home um, when he was around in the 14th century. So people hadn't really seen it. And the idea that you could kind of heat sand, uh, rock, bits of rock, and it would turn into this kind of beautiful transparent material was sort of like alchemy, kind of extraordinary. But anyway, so my point being that um, it's a powerful way of telling the world how to treat you and, and asking to be uncoded, asking to be decoded, asking for really serious attention. And I think that that's probably something really, I, I, after the, working on this book, every single character, whether it was a French housewife from the 20s who thought her husband had been, you know, murdered and, and exchanged for a double or, you know, another Frenchman, all of them are French because that's where the psychiatry kind of began. But women who thought that George V uh, was in love with her, you know, they're all actually, when it comes down to it, demanding or really asking for something, just the dignity of being sort of sat with somebody entering into their reality. Even if it's only halfway, I think a lot of the doctors have understood that over time, even when the kind of mental health treatment was, was brutal and horrific and people were institutionalized for you know, the rest of their lives. Uh, and it was pretty awful. I think even within that context, doctors often understood that if they just entered into the delusion just a few steps it would allow people to kind of confess and and let go a bit of their delusion and essentially at the underpinning it was often and is often a desire to to be worthy of interpretation worthy of attention it's such a simple thing but um easy to forget i think well, you know, the beauty of that, um, two things, is a, a lot of times, like I took an improv class, and they have this game called Yes And. And it's, you know, one person creates a, a world or a delusion, and you just say yes to it, and then you build on it. And then it becomes this fun, you know, kind of thing where uh, we get so caught up in what we believe the realities of, of things are, should be and and not wanting to appear crazy or yeah. appear that we have a mental illness, that any sign of it, we, we shut down and uh, try to get things back on track versus entertaining it and recognizing yeah. that that's actually the way to get back um, online or back to some semblance of reality um, or some, you know, uh, a working presence that, that we could have. But um, yeah, for this, sure. This idea of meeting people where they are is if you're, if you're talking to a three-year-old, you, you wouldn't start pontificating about physics and, and, and uh, astronomy. You would meet the, mm. the kid where they are. But I think as adults, we just feel like we have this image of what an adult is yeah. and, and anything outside of that, we, we, we try to erase or eliminate or shame or guilt, not recognizing that we all have this nine-year-old also running around inside of us in that delusions is a, a survival mechanism uh, for some people at some point in time. And, and I feel like that's what you're kind of saying is like, I am the delusions that I'm experiencing is a response to the, the world around me. Yeah. I think that's so interesting. What you talk, what you say about children, I hadn't thought about it uh, in any detail, but I, I think that's right. And in that sense that maybe that's one of the things thinking about it that really got me interested was that you know social conformity is such a strong as you say being adulting you know being an adult being not quote unquote 
crazy, basically the common sense reality, agreeing, like signing up to common sense reality, saying this is what we all, this is basically what we all agree is real. Is so would seem to be and it is so important to our social survival, you know, not being ostracized or laughed at, even worse, you know, the worst thing um uh, thought of as, as ridiculous. And yet, and yet people cling to delusions for dear life. They're they're like phobias in a way. That I mean, phobia is a kind of delusion, I guess. Um that was actually interestingly where I realized I had it. I was thinking, you know, oh, I, I don't think I have one. I must have one, but I don't think I do. And then you know, I've got a lift phobia. And in talking to somebody, I suddenly thought, oh God, it was quite a salutary moment. I realized that that was doing exactly the same function. As long as I stay away from lifts or then everything is, you know, then I'm in, I'm in, I can, I'm in control. And it, again, it kind of organizing your enemy. And um, yeah, so then it, that's what got me thinking or gets anyone in this field thinking is that people who are given that they're sacrificing and risking so much to, to say in public, you know, I'm made of glass or my husband's, can I have a divorce, please? My husband's a double or whatever it is, or I'm already dead. A very painful and strange one, a phenomenon of people who, who which has gone on for hundreds and hundreds of years, who kind of self-annihilation in the, in the delusion that they just, they just don't exist anymore. They're already dead. They've died already. They're risking everything. Um, so what the hell is it offering them? Because it must be something. It must be something really, really, useful protective um strategic otherwise you, you just wouldn't do it and then when you start to ask you know, answer that question you can answer it <laughs> you you begin to be able to answer it it seems like you'd, you'd only you just think well no they're just out of their mind um but you know it's a very very powerful thing to create an alternative reality and ask other people to come to, to come and tour it so that, as you say, children don't have that same sense that they have to, just as you say, that they, that they have to, um, they have to sign up to common sense reality yet. They, they haven't signed that contract. They haven't, you know, and they're already, I mean, I guess that the phenomenon of, um, of, uh, you know, people saying that they've been adopted, that's a classic child's fantasy, isn't it? That your life isn't ordinary, um, or that if your life is really awful, that, again you know that um that oh well it's okay because they're not my real they're not my real parents that my real parents are, are the king and queen of bavaria you know and i i have a character margaret nicholson who, who thinks she's the rightful heir to the british throne in 1796 um but she's doing the same thing really she's just doing it aged aged 30 whatever she was 36 um but it's a really interesting quest thing to think about how how children treat, or we, we wouldn't call them delusions. Well, uh, you know, but, it's almost an invitation to play. Yeah, yeah. It's like an adult version of, hey, do you want to play? Yeah. You know, because that's something that I've um, am struggling with right now is this idea of like, I'm, I'm, I know how to perform, I know how to prepare, I know how to practice. Uh, I've I'm finding that I'm really bad at playing. And, yeah. and I think that um, we, you know, I have a friend, and my sister used to suck her thumb when she was a kid. And some kids used to carry around a blanket and, you know, these these things that we have as security items. Mm. And as, as adults, we kind of lose those things. And, mm. you know, to appear like an adult. And I think we also lose the, the ability to play and just kind of, 
uh, fantasize and wonder. And, and I, it, it could be a suppression mm. of that where then the, the backlash is uh, the uh-huh. extreme delusions, you know, like not letting mm. it out slowly, not expressing it occasionally. It's almost like if you don't walk the dog, the dog yeah. starts to tear up the house kind of thing. Um, the, the, yeah. For the listeners, there's no science behind what I'm saying. I'm just. <laughs> that's that's really interesting. That's really interesting about, yeah, as a as a as an idea that it would be. Yeah, I mean, even the word delusion, you know, from the Latin ludo ludere to play. It's it, you're absolutely that's that's bang on, isn't it? That at the heart of it is an is is a kind of challenge to engage in a game where you say this is this is reality, even though it was deadly serious. They're never ever. Um, they might seem absurd, but they're life and death to the person experiencing them. But there is this. It's a challenge. It's a challenge to to. To play in the non-silly sense of the word, and yeah, I, feel, I think society does um, tell us that once we we're grown up, quote quote unquote, we we shouldn't play, and that's a really interesting way of interrogating it. Is it is it a kind of fight, snapping finally, uh, and and yeah, I, the kind of psychic, uh, what's the word, kind of backlog. <laughs> so, um, slightly disgusting metaphor there, but yeah, that that it, that um that could kind of create something very extreme. I buy that. I think that, I think there's, there could well be something in that. I mean, I've, I've seen often, you know, trying to kind of organize it and I look at all these cases and I, I kind of, I found three really clear triggers, if you like. Russell uh, of fortune, a kind of um, people dealing, often you find that delusions come out of a reversal of fortune, a humiliation, um, often with women, it's being sort of dumped by a lover often because, you know, that accumulation could be not just in terms of pride, but in terms of financial security as well. So, you know, in, in the past particularly, but it's still true now, I suppose, in some, in certain places, but, um, and, uh, or, or irreconcilable, not being able to, not being able to continue that's to kind of hold together conflicting ideas. I found that often, you know, that that's often at the back of conspiracy or paranoid delusions, which are the most common and have been. I have a case from from the 1790s, but it's got more and more and more common. And now it's the most common delusion by far for fairly obvious reasons um, that presents itself. But often at the back of that is people, again, it's like a coiled spring. So that's what's what kind of reminded me, given what you were just saying, this idea that people, psychic stress, essentially the psychic stress of not not living a kind of um communicative life where you're sh- you know where, where you you're accumulating psychic stress and you sort of snap and out of that comes um i mean in james tilly matthew's case he's this spy in the in the double agent spy in the french revolution who i'm talking about so this is all the way back in the 1790s again but it was the same hadn't had much education, autodidact. He'd got to, gone to a few lectures, got himself on a ship to to France with the with the public, lots of public figures. Amazing, you know, amazing that he got himself in that position. But then, of course, he got into terrible trouble. The French thought he was a spy for the English. The English thought he was a spy for the French. And he was kicked back to London and living in poverty with his wife and daughter and no way of making any money. And out of that sprang this extraordinary delusion that... Um, 
the French revolutionaries were trying to overthrow the British government, bring the revolution to London, but they were using magnetic, a machine that emitted magnetic forces to to work on the politicians in in, uh, Westminster. So it's again, it's a kind of wild, imaginative um, delusion, but it, it, it was a psychic, it's like a, that's, I think there's something in what you're saying very much about psychic pressures and people snapping, but that becoming a kind of birthing, birthing these what imaginative um, artifacts, really. They're sort of, they're strange and they're incredible often as just as feats of imagination. They're so, they sit somewhere between fairy tales often and, and ghost stories. And um, they're so imaginative that they, they're kind of, they're like art, artworks, <laughs> you know, and I don't want to trivialize it because also they're very, they can be very, people can be a danger to themselves. They can be a danger to others. It's not a funny, it's not a trivial subject. And I have to be careful when I talk about it to acknowledge that, you know, um, there's a, there's a, there's a dangerous and painful edge to delusions that has to always sort of be acknowledged um, even as I'm saying that they're kind of amazing stories, which they are, that people have, have uh, kind of offer, offer up. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, you were talking about some of the commonalities that uh, have that lead to, uh, you know, delusions that we see in adults. And and tell me, you know, because we we're talking about like the Glass King earlier and there's yeah. a, a few other uh, instances where it seemed to be that because we were talking about psychic stress and mm. and people who are suicidal, um, they typically report a psych ache. And I bring that up to say mm. that typhoid fever seems to have been a commonality in some of the examples in the book. And, and I would assume that yeah. when we think about fever, there's a there's a stress mentally, a, a psychic stress, a heating up of the brain. Did you did you find that in all of them, or was there was there a through line in, with that? In many of them, um, yes, they'd be. And obviously, it's just a side note. Often in the case notes of these of these nineteenth um, century French psychiatrists, because this is where they were all for the first time writing these things down and, and talking to people. Um, and there'd be a line saying had had diphtheria, had had typhoid, all the way back to the, the King of France had had um, had a as you're alluding to, had had a really serious kind of meningitis level inflammation of the brain fever. And yeah, that, I mean, it's so the biological dimension is really interesting. And obviously we can't scan these characters that, I, that I'm focusing on and whose lives I'm exploring. But goodness, I wish we could because it'd be fascinating to know how much of it, I think they are understandable on a psychological level, all of them. But there's often, you know, I mean, yeah, the, the the right front cortex seems to be where it's at with with the good the, with the kind of uh, sophisticated scanning now. Um, you know that if that gets inflamed, your recognition, um, it's who I am in relation to other people. All that's all of that goes on in the front right part of your brain, and if that gets inflamed or damaged or through blunt trauma or through um, or through fever or disease. It, there's a kind of dementia that does it too, Louis bodies, that your left brain 
sort of steps in and creates a narrative to explain to your mind why you recognize somebody, but you don't, they're not, or they're familiar, but you don't recognize them is one case, the delusion of doubles, for example. And, but even if it's not the delusion of doubles, like, yeah, it seems to be a lot of the, a lot of the cases have mention of, of fever illnesses, very serious illnesses in adolescence, um, which would have affected the front right cortex um and you know initially I found that quite challenging because I was so so set on explaining or trying to understand these delusions psychologically and as a reaction to um difficult realities or like a really wretched existence or and I I, I stand by it I think they all are always understandable um but there may also have I may ha I have to accept that there may also be they may have had information, or there may be organic brain reasons why their delusions appeared too. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive. And it's tantalizing because you can't know. Um, but that seems to be the way it's pointing. I mean, there's a, there's um really interesting brand new research about a particular ovarian tumor. Um that has a, has I forgive this quite crude. Obviously, not I'm not a neurologist, but that uh, it has very similar cells to the right front brain, and the immune system can mistake the two and attack the front right brain, thinking um, that it's what's the same it's the same disease as the ovarian tumor, and they now think that may well be the cause of many historic cases of what they thought was quote demonic possession or um very kind of um wild delusions of the past they think may well have been this particular type of tumor so that's a kind of frontier that's they're going to carry on knowing but i don't think it's ever going to it's not going to eclipse the psychological um uh, understandability of of delusions yeah yeah it's it's fascinating because um you know, I was looking up fevers and they say like, once your fever hits around, I think 103, then we can start to have uh, hallucinations and delusions mm. anywhere between 103, 106 uh, that can mm. kick in. So, mm. you know, there, there's, there's something like heat related. It seems like just yeah. extrapolating from that. Um, and, and it also speaks to you know, um, I know at least for myself when I'm experiencing some type of psych ache, uh, mm. cold water, cold showers um, mm. kind of ground me and bring me back into reality. And and I feel like like when you watch old movies, there's always the trope of somebody going mad and then cold water's thrown in their face or and then they like snap out of it, man, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. So I, on a visceral level, I think we're aware of how heat and cold um, how temperatures mm. can affect um, our our mind state. But, mm. you know, in the book, what I, I also thought was really fascinating was you you, you seem to allude to um, how the delusions seem to take place uh, for people like in their, their 40s. Like um, mm. we don't see it a lot in their 20s or 30s. And I wonder how much of that is tied to uh, the hormonal changes in both men and women where like the testosterone is going up or, or, or up in women and, and, and down in men. And, or if there are other, yeah. like, did you find any 
you know, it came to me, the realization came to me probably because I'm a woman in my 40s. So I, I wasn't looking at straight at that. And then I suddenly, another salutary moment. I was like, wow, they're all roughly my age, you know, or, or a lot of them in their early 40s. And um, yeah, I mean, again, you could, it may, that's, I hadn't considered the the kind of hormonal aspect, but certainly, certainly um, that's, there's, there would be a case for that. There's also, you know, if you look at it psycho- psychologically, I mean, you know, the, the French woman who w- walked into the police station asking for a divorce because her husband was a double, had been murdered and he, he was a double. Um, you know, I mean, I allude to it. I can't, I can't prove it and there's no way of ever proving it. But, you know, she, she was clearly ambivalent about her husband, put it to put it mildly, um, hated his guts quite possibly. And there was no chance of... Um, of a divorce or certainly not initiating a divorce if you were a woman at that time in France. So, you know, again, it's just a sort of stage of life. It's a kind of um, middle age, I suppose you might say. Um, <laughs> and, you know, where, so even if it's not, even if it's um, the fact of a kind of uh, children have, you know, growing up or, you know, whatever that is a kind of crisis point to do with middle age whether it's hormonal or psychological or bad marriages, which is what I felt I just, or, or a moment. I mean, it's really interesting because, and again, this is just conjecture, but uh, Leia Anna Bay, who is the character who thought that George V was in love with her, it's kind of reverse stalking. It manifests as the same as stalking, um, but you take no responsibility for it because the person with erotomania, the person, it's the other person who's just desperately in love with you. Um and so it's not your fault. And so it makes it quite a very de- potentially dangerous delusion because it takes no responsibility for, for the delusion or for what happens. But uh, yeah, you know, I, in, and in Madame X, who was a, a woman in the 1880s in France who thought that, told everybody that she'd already died. You know, I found moments in their past and it was interesting. That it's the same kind of gap. It, they were both in their 40s. Um, early 40s and these were things in childhood intriguing kind of moments that popped out for me in researching so one she said she something catastrophic had gone wrong in her communion in her holy communion which at the time would have been the biggest event in a in a French little girl's life when you take the sacrament and you have to fast and confess and I, I, I kind of try and guess at what on earth could have gone so wrong in front of the priest or her family at this, at this, uh, at this communion that she, all these years late, all these decades later, it's something she's telling her psychiatrist about, but it's clearly a trauma, not, not a war trauma that we see often in, in delusions, but a, a trauma nonetheless of something that we can't, and Leia and who, who, uh, had, was experienced of Rotomania, um, Again, she gives this account to her doctor of burning photographs of her family who'd been in the Boer War um, in the 1880s. Again, weird image, kind of arresting image. Don't know, don't know. Something, something dark, family secrets. Something terrible had happened in her family and she gives us this glimpse that kind of made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. You kind of tell in these moments that there's something really charged in them, even though you can't ever, of course, know the back, the full backstory, um, and it's interesting that the gap between those traumas 
was the same. And it was like, I don't know whether what you think about that, but about whether that there's some kind of natural moment in, in your forties when you kind of, when you process trauma, whether, whether it's just simply getting a bit older or having a bit more time from having young babies or I don't know, I'd, but it, it's a really interesting thing to consider that there's some kind of natural moment of appraisal that goes on psychically that stuff kind of comes out like a bruise that's I mean I'm a historian so but I it it definitely felt as though and again even with Robert Burton who's even further back you know 1500s he believed his own he's a man who believed seemed to believe his own horoscope that told him he was going to die he was kind of around at the same time as Shakespeare and astrologers were the were big celebrities in Elizabethan London and he'd visited one as a as a young man and told him he was going to die suddenly when he was exactly on the day he was going to die suddenly or the age the year he was going to die suddenly and again the same kind of gap and it's um it's an interesting thought that there's something about that there's something psychological going on at that period yeah yeah, what do you think? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, because in your, I think what it could, it's, it could be the tale of two cities in terms of being in your 40s, where on one hand, you we might become busier than ever because we've accumulated years and decades of experience in a particular field. Uh, mm-hmm. And so our, we have so much purpose and we're surrounded by a bunch of people. Or the flip side happens where um, you, you're, like you said, uh, it's a reversal of fortunes where mm. you've been successful most of your life and you've had purpose and, and people around you. And then all of a sudden, you mm. know, uh, we lost a lot of people during a pandemic. People mm. have lost their jobs. And now all of a sudden you have all of this free time, this unstructured time to yourself to feel all the things and to think about, you know, what your mm-hmm. life means. And, and also mm-hmm. I think forties is a time where injuries occur, you know, whether it's a back injury knee. So the, the amount of physical pain increases mm-hmm. and, and, and it's new pain, you know, in your twenties. And when you're a kid, you don't, unless like you, you were born with some type of chronic or a, acute uh, type of situation, um, it, pain doesn't really show up in a body on a consistent basis until you hit your forties. And, yeah. and then that can lead to a questioning of, of life. And uh, what, what do I do? How do I take care of this body? So I, I think because yesterday I did a podcast about um, naval suicides and what was interesting, they were, they were, uh, it was four, it's been four this year and they were on a ship that's been docked since 2017. And one of the things they were saying is people, uh, military servicemen don't really end their lives when they're in conflict because they have purpose and surrounded by people. It's when there's no conflict and they just Mm. have all this extra time to themselves. So I I wonder if, you know, that Mm. part of that reversal of fortune, losing the house, losing money, the bear, the the marriage is crumbling. Now you have this extra time to reflect and, and regret and yeah, and yeah. feel the pain that you, we've been suppressing with busyness. Yeah, yeah. 
and that you can't deny there's a kind of a body of time that has passed in your consciousness that you can't deny anymore you just there's just a there's a freight isn't there of experience it's what you were alluding to but it's just there it's and it seems to be a kind of critical mass of that um in your even in your 30s you can still it, it still doesn't feel quite real and i think i think the pandemic's definitely i mean obviously the loss and an illness but even even just time time slips time there's something very strange and on untethered has happened to time um and um certainly delusions seem to me to be a real yearning for kind of scaffolding i I kept thinking about like it's just an image and i mean it's it does literally come up i kind of borrowed it from but people kind of cut cut adrift at sea holding onto them like a life raft you know people don't don't we don't people we nobody likes uh being untethered we need a, we need um we need a framework and uh delusions are kind of sometimes very poetic sometimes not but they are they are scaffolding aren't they they're or they're they're the the door in the titanic <laughs> you know that they're, they're the floating door that you can kind of um you can cling on to. Yeah. You know, when you're talking about Madam M uh, in the book, mm-hmm. you, you know, one of the things that seemed to come up also is the economic disparity that a lot mm-hmm. of these people are living in. And I wonder mm-hmm. how much mm-hmm. of a, of a split society can lead to a split personality, right? Like the, the more the wealthier get wealthy and the poor get poor, then mm-hmm. I, I feel like we as a as a as a human being feel like we have to adapt or die in an extreme way. Like I don't want to be impoverished yeah. in drinking polluted water. Uh and and the climb to being wealthy seems so high. So you almost have to create this. It, it both seem hopeless, I would imagine, for yeah. somebody in the middle. Yeah. And I mean you talk about Madame M. So she's the um for your listeners, she's the woman who thought her husband had been replaced by a double. She's living in Paris <clears throat> during the First World War. And her, um, and she'd grown up as a seamstress, as a petty mouse, they were just doing the, the the really kind of difficult work, making dresses in, in the rising couture industry in Paris. She'd probably come, hard to know, but she'd probably come as a migrant to the city from 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 somewhere more rural and the Belle Epoque, you know, I mean, there's so many parallels, the rhymes are just there, you know, the, the Belle Epoque's in full flow of this kind of very showy, this isn't, you know, the 1880s, um, before the first world war, people are living high on the hog, you know, it's like Instagrammable, <laughs> uh, pre-Instagram, pre-internet Instagrammable stuff going on in Paris. But of course a good half, more than half would have had no access to that whatsoever. Um, and yeah, you can't, how, you know, she will have had all those things that we have now about, hang on a minute, you're watching television. Everyone's watching television now or online. Um, and, and seeing these lifestyles that they maybe get a bit of stardust from, maybe they buy expensive perfume. That's kind of, you know, yeah, stardust from the couture lines that actually nobody buys because nobody can afford them. You know, about six people buy the haute couture, and every all the rest of us mugs buy the, you know, hundred hundred dollar 
a drop perfume to kind of get some so so that again that that what we were talking about earlier the 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 psychic kind of um conflict that's building up between what you've, you what you see is there but you can't get but you but it's there and you're very very close to it she was working in couture so she was literally making the making her hands bleed making these incredibly theatrical dresses for the for the middle upper middle classes who for the first time had lots of spending money and you can't help but think about the oligarch level well obviously that's yeah um another story but the 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 uber rich now um and what and that the kind of conflict that that sets up in a mind that's and both ambition on natural ambition like you know madame m was she come to paris she then marries up, you know, in inverted commas, but she marries a guy who's got a dairy business. It's doing really well. And then the war comes. She loses, she experiences the death of children through disease. Um, horrible, horrible personal trauma. Husband who doesn't sound like a, yeah. We can't know, but you just, you know, doesn't sound, doesn't sound like your dream partner, like your twin flame. And, uh, and, you know, she she then, as you said, as we were talking about, you know, the reversal of fortune. Um, and out of that comes this idea that it's it's easier basically for her with is my interpretation or a, a sort of psychoanalytic interpretation. It's easier to deal with the idea that your husband's not your husband, that he's been sought for a double. In fact, her delusion then extends to the children haven't died. They've they've been abducted. And in fact, the men and who've who disappeared into the First World War and died in the trenches in their horrific mass death a few miles away outside Paris, they haven't died either. They've been they're underground in the catacombs in Paris, and um, we just need to rescue them. You know, it gives it gives her a job to do, gives her because um, there's a there's a plot to be kind of uncovered, and and the police just you know she's always asking the police to get involved. Um, but again, sorry, I've gone off piece, but the 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 kind of psychic uh, ratcheting up, the ratcheting up again of pressure, of things that she can't bear. And that being something, and, and one of those things very definitely being a disparity. She obviously has, she's so close, she's so close to this fabulous Bella Pop lifestyle and it's complete and it's gone. You know, first of all, then she can't quite get it, then she nearly gets it. Um, and then everything just then there's this horrific flip in, in fortune. And for many, many people with the First World War, you know, all the men died, you know. Um, so, yeah, but you, you were talking specifically about the financial, about what disparity in society might do to minds. And I, I think, um, I think certainly that kind of um, dis, dis, a uh, coupling of yourself and your and what you do in your life and then therefore what you're rewarded with when that becomes uncoupled when things are just unfair you know they're just not it won't, wouldn't matter how there's no way of controlling it that's not for you that tranche of you know in her case these are the French upper middle classes and the empire is doing really well and there's suddenly all this expendable there's all this money in the economy but it's for the very tiny, tiny top percent. And there's nothing she can ever do about that. She just has to look at it. 
and the pressure that that would build that would build the kind of and it would it, it makes complete sense that that would be a kind of fertile ground and then of course the you know the the lighting the touch but a great trauma like she did experience would often is the case but it, you know actually actually triggering the delusion yeah yeah, you know, what's beautiful about what you shared is even if you are the top 1% and you're wealthy and rich, there's a, I would imagine there's a powerlessness that one could possibly feel um, from having access to so much and so many resources and it not feeling like it's not enough to eliminate the poverty that you're surrounded by, right? It's, right. It, it's like, because with that, for some people, would I would imagine would be uh, a wealth of of uh, or a freight, as you as you shared earlier, of guilt and shame over I have mm-hmm. so much, and how can these people have so little, and and not also not wanting to exist in that world, which is you know I understand why people would money you know move as far away from the city so that they don't have to be they don't have to experience that that weight of guilt and shame. There's a powerlessness in that. Yeah, it's really interesting that you look at it from that point of view, because that would be just as true. You know, you'd be coming out of the theatre, but you'd be tripping over people in the street. You wouldn't be able to avoid people dying of of horrible diseases and poverty and typhoid and the kind of people washing up on, you know, washing around your feet. You wouldn't have been able to get away from it. And that, I guess, would you, you know, cognitive dissonance is what they you know we'll all do anything to get away from something from irreconcilable uh feelings the kind of ple- pleased as pleased that we're living this amazing life but the guilt or the kind of it, that could hit anybody whichever way you're, when you're looking down you're looking up you know what was the link you know we talked about typhoid fever we talked mm. about uh, humiliation and reversal of fortune Mm. Um, and, and extreme economic circumstances. Mm. Um, but I also noticed a through line of caffeine. Uh, <laughs> caffeine. Being, yeah, caffeine. <laughs> and, uh, mm. You know, and, and at first I, I kind of had the same response as you did as I'm reading your book. And I was like, mm. caffeine. Mm. And then I read, you know, I went down this Google wormhole of the number <laughs> of accomplished um, uh, people from the past who've died from caffeine overdose and how after five cups of coffee or 200 milligrams of caffeine, mm. one can start to become delusional. And, mm. and it seems to tie into the idea of we're talking about inflammation in the brain because mm. caffeine can inflame the brain as could uh, withdrawing from caffeine. Um, so I was wondering uh, how much of, and, and once again, we understand that you're a historian and not a psychologist or neuroscientist, but h- how in your research, how did you see, how much did you see caffeine or coffee playing into it? You know, I'll have to be honest with you. I mean, I, I mentioned it and I remember the moment that I, that it comes up Um they're giving, it's in the, it's in the notes for Madam M written by, um, Joseph Capgrath, who was her 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 psychiatrist, um, and he's asking her, you know, he's asking about her. He's just making notes essentially about her backstory, you know, uh, where she where she'd grown up, whether there was anything physical he could see. They were big on tapping the 
the patella, the, you know, the knee to see if the reflexes, they kind of make notes on, on how good your reflexes are. And he says, he makes a point of saying, we notice, we don't notice anything in her backstory apart from uh, her only vice is coffee. Um, and I, I'll be honest, it sort of made me smile. I thought, because uh, I thought, A. <laughs> um, I thought, oh, gosh, that's quite a... Um, I don't know, quite a controlling way of looking at her. But actually, yes, I think, I think maybe he, you know, you've, you've made me think about this, that perhaps, and it is, it is a strong, it is a drug at the end of the day. Um, and it's easy to, to forget that. And anything that was kind of inflaming, potentially, if she was drinking a lot of strong coffee, that could certainly have been um, part of it. And he was a, a clever man okay his frame his kind of points of reference and sometimes the way he talks about people uh socially is dated and makes you, and it's a, it feels very very antiquated and you can suddenly feel the gap of years um uh about her schooling or you know whether she'd been overeducated that kind of stuff but actually maybe maybe he was onto something uh, very early about about how powerful caffeine could be or or maybe it was linked because he also noticed her her childhood fever, and so they were obviously thinking about this. They would they would have these um, kind of symposia, where they'd all get together. Sometimes with and this was the case with Madame M. They'd literally sort of bring the the delusional case study out in front of into this kind of auditorium, and share notes and talk about their present their case study uh, to their to their peers. Um, and they were obviously talking, thinking about obviously pre any kind of scanning or pre much anything sophisticated in terms of diagnostics, but that they kind of knew that it wasn't all going to be psychological and they were trying to fill their way. And then the mention of, of coffee, you know, maybe he was onto something, maybe he kind of, maybe he, he knew something, he instinctively felt that there was a kind of inflammation story there that that was part of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you. You know, for sharing that. Um, because I'm, I'm, I notice like when I get on coffee, like it, it completely dysregulates me. It makes me a bit more anxious. Um, and I'm definitely not drinking five cups of coffee. So I, I am not interested in knowing what that feels like, <laughs> but, um, you know, when you're talking about Robert Burton in a book and I found this really fascinating on page mm. 106, um, how um, you said that astrology and melancholy were his masters and that he couldn't resist looking into the, the future. It, 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 yeah, to me, that yeah. alludes to like looking into the future as being something that caused him more distress. Can you share more oh, about this that? Is so interesting. And especially given your work and, and what this amazing podcast, what the themes that run through this, he, he is an amazing story. Um, he was a scholar in Oxford, Robert Burton brilliant man and he understood much more he he understood everything you know he was so erudite he'd he knew that as that um birth charts were kind of outdated they'd been very popular for hundreds of years but he kind of they were laughed at by the time he was in the high office in in oxford university but yet you know secretly he wasn't above it and this he so he writes really interestingly about how we're kind of as humans, we're, we're, we can't help ourselves wanting to know the future, but that once we know the future, 
Um, so he kind of laughs at people that believe their horoscopes, even though he believed his. But he knows that once you know something, once you believe that you're going to die on a given day or that you have that there's this kind of you can make it come true and that it can be a terrible trap. Um, and that belief about what's going to happen to you, and which follows kind of this human self-sabotaging desperate curiosity about the future. He understood it completely and he he literally, you know, had complete contempt for it in his writing. But he it I I argue and I think, you know, I've got the paper trail. He he believed it. He'd he'd been to an astrologer when he was a young, very young man, probably suffering from what we'd now call severe depression. Um, he dropped, you know, he, there's blanks in his university education and melancholy, of course, very, very crudely, but is a kind of analogue for, for what we think of now as depression, a really kind of deep sadness. I mean, it had, at his time, it had other qualities too, sort of being quite high-minded, being kind of extra sensitive. Um, so melancholy men were kind of seen as you know, the classic image of a melancholy man is sort of stretched on a riverbank, staring into the middle distance with a, a knowing smile. You know, it's quite sort of, um, yeah, it's not it's not seen as an abject state. It's seen as something quite high-minded. But nonetheless, looking at him, I think it's quite clear he was plagued with depression, what we'd now think of as depression, what they then called melancholy. And, um, and he... Was went to this sort of superstar astrologer um, in the city of London and, and was told that he would die suddenly and the chart was drawn up uh, with the stars and the, the alignment of the planets and so on and so forth. And even though it was kind of, um, as I say, outdated by this point in terms of, like so many things, I guess it takes a while to catch up, doesn't it? It's like having, not everyone has contemporary furniture. We all have our grandmother's sofa or chest of drawers right we have stuff in our mental in our houses in our head that link that stays on even when everything is supposedly modern and uh, and so I think a lot of the population probably secretly well we still do don't we a lot of people still do uh, believe their horoscopes but he's very he's very clear in in his um, front brain as it were that that's a really dangerous trap and he implores people not to not to uh, to be able to stay present and because what because it's such a terribly dangerous thing to to know your future you will make it come true so he's he's a really intriguing person because he kind of he's writing about you know it's like two people it's like two people <laughs> I, I love that i i love that this idea of just staying present you know that goes back to eckhart Tolle, the the power of the now um and and for people who listen to my podcast, they know I have an astrologer on who talks about the next month or three months. And uh, for me, it does provide kind of a scaffolding. Uh, yeah, and uh, me too. I, I'm yeah. Oh, you use astrology also? Well i i had a <laughs> I had a birth chart done for me by a friend of the family when I was nine, and I look at it all the time. Or I, actually, I read. I read Robert Burton's book, The Anatomy of Melancholy. Like as I use it like the I Ching, you know. So I'm definitely like I I I will look up and the bit. So I'm partial to. I think there's huge power in it. I don't rubbish it at all. I just sort of I took the warning from him to just you know 
we can't resist it and it's what and it, it can be scaffolding and it can be guiding and it can give you a, a structure for your day you know like I say like the I Ching I kind of and I literally look at his book I have a very old copy that psychiatrist gave me so it's kind of precious when I was writing the book he very kindly gave me this really really old copy and I'll open it up and I'll see what and it feels like it there's meaning there's meaning in that so we just I desire to look for meaning and to look for structure, like we like when we began the conversation, it's strong in all of us. And don't I don't I don't think we should fight it. <laughs> I think there's mystery, and I think there's mystery. That's okay. <laughs> and I think that's a beautiful place to to wrap it up because it, it seems like at the end of the day, when we're talking about delusions, we're talking about one is learning how to see each other and meet each other where we're at. Two, it, it, you know, you talk about how it gives us purpose. It gives us an itinerary. It gives us direction. Um, and, and three, we all just want to feel competent um, on some yes. level. We want to feel like we have some agency and yes. or autonomy uh, over our lives. And, and we will we'll, we'll fight for that, um, whether it's based in reality or in delusions. But uh, it's a part of what drives us. Is there is there anything else you wanted the listeners to take no, away think, from your book? I think that's beautifully put. And you know, I suppose also peace. I would add to that list that we, you know, and maybe that's maybe that's something that we could try and do. You know, just to try to con- try to resolve irreconcilable conflicts as like as you're saying I think I think that's a really good idea I'm going to try and do it to to let those things out as you go along and not let not let um irreconcilable feelings or conflicts ratchet up um but to kind of because delusions talk to us about oh, this desperate need to to have some peace just to, to not try and hold warring ideas in our head or and I just think the psychic energy that we use up um by doing that can be terribly damaging and if maybe if we all tried not to try to easier said than done but i maybe what i mean is delusions can show us not only how we the strategies we we employ when things have got really bad but also how we might try and um preempt that <laughs> by just being more aware of those caught that when if, if something is born out of conflict and how we might find some peace without having to constructed an alternative reality to get some yeah we, you know with uh leah b you talk about how she wrote letters as a way to um kind of let the air out and release some of that psychic or uh, mental tension and you yeah. know that's i think that's the power of journaling to kind of express um you know what's bothering us or what's exciting us or you know what's guiding us get get more clarity Oh, for sure. For sure. That's a really interesting point. Yeah. And letters appear in the, the book a lot and they're incredibly articulate, much more, tic- you know, yeah, I, I buy that completely. Uh, last question I have, Victoria <laughs> Shepard. And, um, and we, like I said, we understand you're a historian, not a psychologist, but I ask this of all my guests is always imagine there's one person listening in who may mm. be on the precipice of wanting to end their life mm. before you kill yourself. What would you say to them, Victoria Shepherd? I would say to them, all of us, you are the solidarity that I have seen in my, in writing my book about people who experience delusions is unarguable. 
you so many people are dealing with incredibly difficult realities and um there are ways out of ways of speaking and sharing strategies and comforts from other people who who have experienced a similar feeling that they can't bear their reality and found that they can bear their reality if they can hold on and i think i personally as a historian recommend looking back and finding solace in people who've done just that in the past because i found it thank you victoria shepherd thank you listeners for tuning in remember this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE 1-800-273-TALKS or if you're in london or budapest or mexico or wherever you are in the world there are international suicide hotline uh, prevention numbers you can call text chat um, there are groups you can join. There are financial resources. It's all linked in all of the show notes. You can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Victoria. Thank you so much.